Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 35, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It's late Friday night, March 4th, and I am in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama. Also, I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. Normally, we begin this show by kind of easing into things a bit. I might share with you what's been going on in my world this week or what I've been watching on TV. Maybe tell a silly story before getting into comments and corrections. But there's a war going on. And let's be clear, it's not the only war. Since this conflict has unfolded in Ukraine, we have quietly bombed both Syria and Somalia. There's civil war and nation-to-nation conflict in other parts of the world, too. And it's not that those conflicts don't matter or aren't important. But because a nuclear and world power like Russia is the aggressor here, the possibility of shifting sands in the geopolitical landscape is present, So this war takes center stage in a way that others do not. What was last time we spoke a crisis on the verge of spilling over into conflict is now a full-on war as Russia has launched an aggressive invasion of the Ukraine by land, air, and sea and from all directions. The Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv and their president Volodymyr Zelensky are under siege A million people, most of whom are women and children, have become refugees fleeing to nearby Poland and other neighboring nations. Ukraine citizens have taken up arms and joined the fighting, with some estimating as many as 16,000 foreigners voluntarily arriving to bolster Ukrainian forces as well. Make no mistake, Ukraine is fighting bravely and admirably. Russia has not had the immediate success they were expecting, And best estimates have both countries losing close to 1,500 troops so far. But Ukraine is severely outgunned and is still only a matter of time until Russia captures the targets they're aiming for, even in spite of Ukraine's valor and the Russian army's apparent logistic and morale problems. Amidst the fighting, near disaster was seemingly avoided yesterday as one of the world's largest nuclear power plants caught fire but was put out before a Chernobyl-type situation emerged. The world has responded to the fighting in Ukraine, sending ammo, weapons, and money to President Zelensky and his troops, 
as well as with placing historic level sanctions on Russia, its oligarchs, and on its president meant to put the country's economy in a chokehold, tank the value of its currency with the ruble now worth less than a penny, and create unrest within the country's people, causing their support of both President Putin and his war to wane. Protests have popped up in Paris, D.C., New York City, and even major Russian cities such as St. Petersburg, but to this point, no substantive peace talks have taken place between the two countries. It is war. It's tragic, messy. Nothing is static, and things are changing constantly. Accurate information is hard to come by, and by the time you're hearing this 24 hours from now, things may have developed further. But right now, this is where things stand. Now, before moving on to the other news for the evening, I do want to touch on bits of reporting you may be hearing in other spheres of media about the war in Ukraine that simply aren't helpful. The first bit of reporting I want to touch on is what this war is even really about. Because already from media that is left of center, I have heard that this is really a war about NATO expansion. And that if you look on the map, you will see how military outposts of NATO countries have continued to encroach on Putin and Russia, much to their chagrin. And if you look at the roster of NATO countries, you see that it has increased exponentially since its creation. Meanwhile, from the right, you're hearing that this is nothing more than a civil war of sorts, that for the past eight years there has been fighting in the Donbass region of southeastern Ukraine with forces that are pro-Russia and forces that are pro-Ukrainian, and that this is just the culmination of that as powers from around the world have supported the Ukrainian forces and Putin and the Russians have supported the others. While it's true that the expansion of NATO has been a thorn in the side of Putin, and that there's legitimate criticism to be found there, and while it's true that there has been fighting in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, make no mistake, this is not a war that is about NATO expansion. It's not a war that's uh, about the civil war going down in one small region in southeastern Ukraine. This is a war that's about Vladimir Putin's aggression about his desire to reestablish the USSR to all of its former glory, just as he said he would when he took power back in 1999. Other reporting that I have seen that is not helpful is mainstream media's insistence that we must do more. We've got to do more. Have some compassion. We've got to do more to help President Zelensky, to help the people of Ukraine. Do you not care? Do you not see what Russia's doing? Uh, there's been talk of a uh, no-fly zone being instituted over Ukrainian airspace. There's been talks of UN troops or American troops possibly having boots on the ground. And those are suggestions that simply cannot happen. They simply cannot happen. The thing that we don't want to do, yes, we want to help the Ukrainians. No, we don't want President Zelensky and his government to fall. But the thing above all that cannot happen is we cannot go over to the Ukraine and instigate World War III. And doing either of those things would make that a distinct possibility. Those are things that could clearly and logically be seen as an act of war by Russia. Russia who isn't really relying on logic right now. I don't know that the strategy of sanctions will work. 
I don't know that it will work fast enough. It appears as though Russia is going to capture the city of Kiev, and my prayers are with President Zelensky. He's shown himself to be a man of valor and honor. I'm like the rest of you guys. I want there to be more to be done. But in this situation, I'm not sure what that thing is that doesn't end up resulting in World War III. For as much fair criticism as President Biden has received from this show as of late, I think so far his administration has handled this about as even-keeled as possible. They haven't overreacted, they haven't gotten us into a situation that there's no coming back from, and they've done their best to address things in as an effective manner as possible. So UN countries keep sharing ammo, keep uh, arming the Ukrainians, share intel with them, do whatever you can to, to aid them, but boots on the ground, they're not an option for us. Even if a war-hungry mainstream media continues to insist otherwise. Other reporting that's not helpful is reporting about China and about their role and uh, about the reaction that their government will have, President Xi Jinping will have, in response to how things are unfolding in Ukraine and that part of the world. Xi Jinping, who at this point has not spoken out against Russia despite the urging of the United States government, who has appeared to share information with them that we have shared with them leading up to the invasion of Ukraine. From the outside looking in, it sure looks as though China is on the side of Russia. And the conclusion that many will draw from that is that, hey, if China is not speaking out against Russia invading Ukraine, if they're aiding them, if they're sharing information, if they're on their side in some way, Will that not empower them to start taking a look amid all the international tumult and chaos at invading Taiwan? At doing something similar with Taiwan who they long have desired to have dominion over and have claimed is uh, actually a part of China. They don't recognize it as its own sovereign nation. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think this actually, this whole incident with Russia and uh, the way that the international community has responded, the economic sanctions that we and, and other nations have placed on the oligarchs in Russia and on the businesses and on the nation and on the economy there, I think that actually has the opposite effect. A nation like China that believes that they can have their own independent relationships with nations all across the world that they can maintain good relationships with us while also supporting Russia, I think they see these sanctions. They see the stranglehold it puts on Russia's economy, what it does to their money, their economic standing in the world. And I think it actually is a phenomenal deterrent to them when it comes to doing something like invading Taiwan. At the beginning of this whole conflict between Ukraine and Russia, Seven Chinese fighter jets were seen in Taiwan airspace. But since these unprecedented sanctions have rolled in, it's all been quiet on that front. I don't think President Xi wants any part of similar sanctions. The last thing that I want to mention before moving on is that this invasion of Ukraine, this unprovoked war, this is an indictment of Putin, but it's not an indictment of all Russian people. Uh, 
In the last several days online, I've really started to see some anti-Russian sentiment rising up. Russian liquor is being pulled off the shelves. I saw one story about Paralympic Games that would no longer allow Russians to compete. I've heard comments from celebrities about how there's no such thing as a good Russian. And it shouldn't have to be said, but it needs to be said at this point that this war is an indictment of Vladimir Putin, but not of all Russian people. I've watched with amazement on the news, as you see in Russian cities, you see Russian people, people that don't have the same freedoms of speech and assembly the way that we do here in America, showing up in their city streets and protesting the war, protesting for peace. We've seen Russian tennis stars and celebrities and business people start to speak out against Putin, start to speak out against this war, start to insist for peace. The actions of those in the Kremlin are unquestionably awful. Their judgment, their decision-making, the, the lack of value for human life, the refusal to recognize the sovereign nation, it's despicable. But that doesn't mean that all Russian people are. Disparaging an entire people group will do little to help those whose back are up against a wall in the Ukraine. All right, no time for comments and corrections or emails tonight. We've got a great show for you. But before we get to the rest of the news in the world of politics, let's take a second to hit the headlines. It must be said, Biden is dangerously impaired, writes the American Spectator. NATO chief accuses Putin of using illegal bombs, reports Fox News. Russia blocks access to BBC and Voice of America websites, says Reuters. From CBS News, Supreme Court reimposes death sentence for Boston Marathon bomber. And finally, emails point to oversight problems with NIH-backed coronavirus grant, and that is according to The Intercept. Our first story in the world of politics, lawmakers devastated for our democracy after Jeff Zucker's resignation. Jeff Zucker's resignation as president of CNN not only sent shockwaves through the media world, but even rattled members of Congress, according to a report from the network. Jamie Gangle, a special correspondent for CNN and a longtime associate of Zucker, said four members of Congress, including one who sits on the highly politicized Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill, felt devastated for our democracy following Zucker's resignation. The first calls I got this morning were from four members of the January 6th committee who felt devastated for our democracy because Jeff was not going to be around to make sure that CNN is able to do its job, she said. I think the company's made a terrible mistake by doing this, Gangle said of her former boss's sudden departure. I don't think you have any appreciation for what you've done to this organization, she added. Zucker abruptly resigned Wednesday after acknowledging a consensual relationship with another network executive an entanglement that came to light during an investigation of now-fired anchor Chris Cuomo. Zucker said he was asked about his relationship with longtime aide Allison Gollist as part of the Cuomo investigation, which revealed that the former anchor had aided his brother, then-New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, as he navigated a sexual harassment scandal. So, four members of the United States Congress are afraid that our democracy may be in peril. 
because Jeff Zucker is no longer heading up CNN. <laughs> this is a real news article. This is not The Onion. This is um, not the Babylon Bee. Members of Congress who at least theoretically have a better understanding than the average American about what constitutes a threat to democracy, who are aware of what some of these threats may be, who help decide what goes to the president's desk and what becomes law in our glorious nation. And they're afraid that democracy might be in peril because Jeff Zucker is no longer in charge of CNN. <sighs> what are we going to do? Um, Maybe we'll have a, a better news network <laughs> is, is maybe what we'll do. Uh, maybe they'll put somebody in charge of CNN that uh, doesn't feed the outrage machine in order to um, get ratings or who doesn't just uh, tell us what Donald Trump had for lunch every day. Maybe that's what we'll do. Um, maybe they'll put somebody in there that actually has a dedication to journalism and to proper sourcing and vetting of stories. Um, maybe that's what we'll do. And if not, then uh, maybe more people will start listening to In the Shed with West. Maybe... Maybe that's what we'll do in the shed with Wes Anderson. Maybe I'll bring Jeff Zucker on, is is uh put him in the shed next to me, give him his own little table, and uh, maybe he'll be my producer. He's got some time on his hands. We have a a pretty small budget though, so Jeffrey, if you want to work for free, holler at your boy. Our next story in the world of politics. The U.S. has temporarily suspended Mexican avocado imports after an American official received a threatening phone call. The U.S. temporarily suspended Mexican avocado imports after a U.S. plant safety inspector received a threatening phone call. In an announcement on Saturday, Mexico's agriculture ministry said the halt in shipments affected avocados from the major growing region of Mashokan. U.S. health authorities made the decision after one of their officials who was carrying out inspection in Europan received a threatening message on his official cell phone, the ministry said, according to an Associated Press translation of the announcement. U.S. inspectors from Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Services inspect the fruits in Mexico to ensure the shipment that reached the U.S. don't carry diseases that could affect American avocado crops, according to the AP. The Mexican Agriculture Ministry said the USDA was assessing the security threat, according to Bloomberg. Mashokin has been dealing with gang violence, according to the AP and Reuters. The USDA did not immediately reply to insiders' requests for comment. The import suspension came as avocado prices hit record highs in the weeks leading up to the Super Bowl when consumption typically surges. Bloomberg reported earlier this month that the price spike was due to an increase in production costs, a labor crunch, and a supply chain logjam. A recent USDA report indicated that avocado prices at U.S. supermarkets were up about 60% from a year ago, the logistics trade publication Freight Waves reported over the weekend. 
The USDA said in October that Mexico's avocado production was expected to be 8% lower than it was over the previous year. Mexico reported almost $3 billion worth of avocados in 2020, the most recent year for which data is available, according to Statista. The data provider indicated that about 80% of Mexico's avocado shipments went to the U.S. in 2020. So, basically what I gather from that article is that the avocado trade in Mexico is a $3 billion industry that is apparently run by the cartel. (laughs) And I'm not saying, I'm just saying apparently the avocado industry in Mexico is run by the cartel. And hey, why would it not be if it's a $3 billion industry? Who knew that? Av- I mean, I knew avocado toast was uh, popular in pish posh neighborhoods. Um, I've had uh, avocado in my salad a few times. Um, I'm pretty well off. But I had no idea that the cartel was in the avocado game. And it kind of makes you boy, you know, right next to my shed, I've got quite a bit of yard. And uh, I don't know what it takes to grow avocados. Um, But I figure here in Alabama, the climate is somewhat like that in Mexico. And I could probably grow some pretty mean avocados. Uh, I might get into the avocado game. But apparently the USDA inspector... Uh, got a phone call from somebody at the cartel uh, and did the exact opposite of what I would have done in that situation. I'm telling you, this USDA person has guts. Here they are doing their job inspecting avocados. They get a threatening phone call from the Mexican cartel and they immediately respond by suspending import of avocados to the United States. Uh... I would have been like, yes, Mr. Cartel person, I will, uh, I, I'm giving you avocados an A plus as we speak. <laughs> I hear you loud and clear. Please don't murder my family. Your avocados are, uh, price them, price them however you want them. And they're going to the United States. They're going to be in the grocery store. They're going to be in the Walmart. I don't know. I guess Walmart sells avocados. Uh, Kmart probably, that's a little bit nicer than, than your Walmart. You can get uh, double the amount at, at the Costco. But that USDA person is, uh, they pretty brave. they pretty brave to rebuff the cartel like that. Usually the cartel does not tend to like that, and they remember these things. Um, but yeah, so if you have some trouble getting your avocados, at least for a little while, uh, now now you know why. And uh, that article, I tell you what, that was the best sourced article uh, I've read in a long time because every other sentence was like according to Reuters, according to the AP. According, I mean, their sources, their source game was on point. If Jeff Zucker could uh, make sure that CNN had articles as well sourced as this here avocado article, he might still be at CNN instead of on a waiting list to see if he can make it as my producer here on In the Shed with Wes Anderson. But I digress. Our next story in the world of politics, Black Lives Matter will not confirm who controls his $60 million after founders stepped down. Charity auditors have expressed alarm at the management of Black Lives Matter's $60 million in donations after it emerged that people announced as leading the organization never took up the role 
and no one seemed to be able to say who was handling the finances. The most recent tax filing for the charity from 2019 gives an address in Los Angeles that doesn't exist, and the two remaining Black Lives Matter directors identified by the Washington Examiner were not able to assist, with one even scrubbing BLM associations from his social media after he was contacted by the paper. They're yet to file a 2020 return, a Form 990 as required, which could see BLM fined by the IRS. Lori Styron, executive director of Charity Watch, said the findings were deeply troubling and said that they should have filed the 2020 form by now. Like a giant ghost ship full of treasure drifting in the night with no captain, no discernible crew, and no clear direction, she said. Paul Kaminar, counsel for conservative watchdog group the National Legal and Policy Center, told the paper a full audit was needed describing the situation as grossly irregular. The problem began in earnest in May 2021 when BLM co-founder Patrice Colors stepped down as director of the BLM Global Network, the national body representing all the individual local chapters. Colors co-founded BLM in July 2013 after a Florida jury acquitted George Zimmerman in the killings of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Alicia Garza, an Oakland activist, posted what she called a love letter to black people on Facebook writing, Our Lives Matter. Colors, a friend of Garza, replied with the hashtag Black Lives Matter. New York activist Opal Tometi then used the words while building a digital network of community organizers and anti-racism activists. Garza and Tometi are no longer affiliated with the network, and Colors was its figurehead and leader throughout the George Floyd protests, which saw huge donations flood in. The organization's finances had been managed by a group called Thousand Currents, which says it has a mission of supporting grassroots movements pushing for a more just and equitable world. In the summer of 2020, leaders sought nonprofit status with the IRS, which was granted in December 2020, allowing the organization to receive tax-deductible donations directly. The designation requires the foundation to file public 990 forms revealing details of its organizational structure, employee compensation, programming, and expenses. In September 2020, Colors signed documents with Thousand Currents transferring $66.5 million into BLM's accounts. In February 2021, Black Lives Matter confirmed it took in $90 million throughout 2020, distributed to their partner organizations, and had $60 million remaining in its accounts. In its report, a snapshot of which was shared with the AP, the BLM Foundation said that individual donations via its main fundraising platform averaged at $30.76 each. More than 10% of the donations were recurring. The report does not state who gave the money in 2020, and leaders declined to name prominent donors. Expenses were approximated at $8.4 million. That includes staffing, operating and administrative costs, along with activities such as civic engagement, rapid response, and crisis intervention. BLM said at the time that they were sharing the details in a bid to be more transparent, admitting that their structure and finances had previously been opaque. But two months later, in April 2021, reports began emerging provided by the National Legal and Policy Center, which showed Colors had amassed a $3.2 million property empire. Colors owned four properties, three in Los Angeles area and one outside of Atlanta, the researchers found. Many within BLM turned against Colors, questioning where she had accumulated the money. 
Caloris has written two books, has a deal with YouTube, and signed a production deal with Warner Brothers in 2020 to develop programming for children, young adults, and families. However, amid the fur, she stepped down and announced that two people were taking over as executive directors, Makani Thimba and Monifa Bandeli. Yet Thimba and Bandeli in September said that they had never taken up the roles following disagreements with leadership. Although a media advisory was released indicating that we were tapped to play the role of senior co-executives at BLMGN, we were not able to come to an agreement with the Acting Leadership Council about our scope of work and authority, they said in a statement. As a result, we did not have the opportunity to serve in this capacity. Thimba and Ben Daly said they did not know who was now running BLM as their discussions never progressed. Two other people remained on the board after Kalor's department, Shalemiah Bowers and Raymond Howard, according to undated documents obtained by the Washington Examiner. Bauer served as a treasurer for multiple activist organizations run by Colors, the Washington Examiner reported, including BLM PAC and a Los Angeles-based jail reform group that paid Colors $20,000 a month and spent nearly $26,000 on meetings at a luxury Malibu beach resort in 2019. Bowers has not commented on the current status of the $60 million in the BLM coffers. Howard also refused to comment when asked by the paper, and has since updated his LinkedIn page to remove references to his work with an international social justice organization. Tax returns filed by BLMGN in 2019 give an address in Los Angeles that does not exist. When a reporter with the Washington Examiner went to a similar address and same zip code, a security guard said that many people make the mistake, but there was no BLM presence in the building. An unnamed BLM spokesperson told the paper by email, In response to your request for a copy of Black Lives Matter's Global Network Foundation's 2020 Form 90, we wish to inform you that at this time we do not maintain a permanent office. Kaminar said that his watchdog group believes there should be a full audit of BLM. Bottom line, a lot of questionable financial activity, organizational structure, location of the books, etc. that call for a full investigation, Kaminar said. BLM are yet to respond to request for comment. So, this is a story that I have been keeping an eye on for a while now. And the information that I just shared with you, by the way, um... was from MSN. Um, It wasn't the reports from the Washington Examiner or the New York Post, um, both of which have put out some pretty credible reports, but also are very right-leaning as well. What I just shared with you was the facts as they are known and compiled by MSN. Um, This is alarming. This is an alarming situation. It's not something that really is being reported a whole lot uh, on the news. The only coverage that I'm seeing of this is articles like the one that I read that are buried on uh, back pages of mainstream media news sites. Uh, It's been talked about a little bit on Fox News, but it hasn't gotten the coverage that it should. Uh, Black Lives Matter which in all fairness has done some really good work. And you may not agree with everything that they have done, but as a whole, what they stand for, 
and why they were started is something that most of us can agree with and get behind. Um, but what so often happens in these situations, and I'm not saying this is the case with BLM, I don't know. I only know the facts that we know so far. But what happens a lot of time in these situations, a lot of times in these situations, is that someone starts a nonprofit with good intentions, with a good mission that they want to accomplish, with some injustice that they want to address. Their nonprofit gets some, some news coverage, and donations begin to roll in. And it's hundreds of thousands and sometimes even millions of dollars. And uh, it's a whole lot more to deal with and to figure out and to allocate than the people who started the organization ever anticipated. And when you don't have an experienced board over your charity, and when you don't have clear lines of delineation as far as why you exist and what the money will be used for and who is in control of it and a clear and transparent accounting of who's given the money and how it's been spent, there begins to take on the appearance of shadiness. Now, uh, the person that was in charge of some of these right-leaning organizations have reported so much ad nauseum about the houses that she bought, and that doesn't really concern me as much because she does have a couple of book deals and a deal with YouTube who pays a lot in the deals that they make and production deals, and people can get loans in order to purchase investment properties. I'm not so, so concerned with that. But what's concerning is that the group is not up to date on their 990 forms, that they're not being upfront about who is making decisions, about who's in charge of the money. They don't even have an actual address listed on the IRS forms that we can access. And all of those things are concerning because this is an organization that thousands upon thousands of people have given their hard-earned money to. Because they want progress when it comes to the way that minorities are treated in the justice system by the justice system, because they want equality for all, because they want equity. And when people who want those things, good things, when people who want a difference to be made give money to an organization, they should be able to have confidence in where that money's going and how it's being used. And an overwhelming majority of the money given to that charity should go not to pay salaries, not to sit in an account and accrue interest, but to accomplish the goals of that organization and of that charity. And this is a problem not just with BLM. This is a problem with a lot of charities, a lot of 501c3s. And there are websites that you can go on to find out, to find out how transparent these charities are with their accounting, to find out what percentage of the money given actually goes to help those in need versus used for administrative costs. And the verdict is still out in this situation. We don't know. We can speculate. Uh, it certainly doesn't look good. We don't know. But there certainly needs to be some clarity. There needs to be some clarity about who's in charge, about where the money's going, about why they're not up to date on these forms that they're supposed to be, what's being declared, what's not, and why? What's going on behind the scenes here? 
because so many people look at an organization like BLM and they want to believe that the aim is good and to do good. But this certainly doesn't look it. Our last story in the world of politics, unmasking of Rudy Giuliani on Fox's The Masked Singer prompts judges Ken Jong and Robin Thicke to walk off in protest. Rudy Giuliani was unmasked as an exiting costume contestant in last week's taping of the first Season 7 episode of Fox's popular primetime series The Masked Singer. Deadline hears that as soon as they saw Giuliani, judges Ken Jong and Robert Thicke quickly left the stage in protest. The show is known for its jaw-dropping surprises when celebrity contestants shed their headpieces after they are eliminated. The reaction to Giuliani was perhaps the most polarizing the show has seen since 2020. The Masked Singer faced criticism when another controversial Republican politician, Sarah Palin, was unveiled as the bear. We aren't revealing which costume Rudy wore or what his swan song was. His exit episode won't air until next month, so you can still revel in his reveal. The theme of the new season is the good, the bad, and the cuddly. Your political affiliation determines which category Giuliani fits in. So is he the good, the bad, or the cuddly? I Personally, I don't think uh, Rudy Giuliani would fit into the cuddly. I will leave it up to you whether he fits into the category of the good or the bad, my babies. Um, yeah, so Rudy Giuliani was on The Masked Singer. And that is a show that I have watched a grand total of two times. Uh, never never really got into The Masked Singer. I, I don't really understand how it works. Um, they wear these giant headpieces. Uh, celebrities do these giant masks. And they sing. And there are judges, but they don't appear to be judging very much of anything. And they guess at who might be in the in the mask. And then at some point, somebody takes the mask off and they get sent home. And I don't... <laughs> I don't really know what's going on. Um, I can't pretend I do. Uh, maybe if somebody hearing this could send me an email at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com and explain the concept of the show to me. Let me know, my babies. How does this show work? What What is The Mass Singer, and do you watch it? Do you like the show? It is not my cup of tea. I would rather watch Jeopardy. Um, or maybe Wheel of Fortune for my wife. She really, she's uh, bizarrely, bizarrely talented at the Wheel of Fortune. Um, but yeah, Rudy Giuliani was on there, and when he was revealed as the person singing... Two of the judges apparently walked off the stage in disgust. Um, maybe he worked up a sweat, and maybe he had some of that uh, hair dye streaming down the side of his face. Because I might walk off if I saw if I saw that <laughs> if I saw that also. Um, but yeah, I thought we have talked some serious things: uh, possible mismanagement of money by BLM. Uh, the war in Ukraine, and a democracy fading away because Jeff Zucker is no longer at CNN. So I thought we'd end it with uh, Rudy Giuliani. And I can only imagine that he's singing something super patriotic. He's probably singing, uh, hit, hitting the judges with that, well, put a boot in your, mm, it's the American way. 
Courtesy of the red, white, and blue. It's, um, I imagine that's Rudy Rudy Giuliani singing singing that song. Um, I don't think if I was a judge, I would storm off no matter who it was. I don't think it would really bother me. It might surprise me. Oh, that's Rudy Giuliani. Okay. Um, that's where he's at in his life now. He went from America's mayor to Trump's lawyer to the masked singer. Um yeah, it can only go up from here, Rudy. Or maybe not. We'll have to. We'll we'll, we'll just we'll wait and we'll wait and see, Rudy. And uh, that's that's all for politics this week. That's how we we gonna leave it. That's that's all she wrote. I'm Rudy Giuliani in a mask, singing some uh some Toby Keith. I can only imagine. Uh, Let's switch to <laughs> let's switch to this the news in the world of sports, and let's hit the headlines. Cowboys likely to release Amari Cooper, Suns owner Robert Sarver to speak with investigators. DeAndre Jordan signs with 76ers after clearing waivers. Bradley Beal leaning toward re-signing with the Washington Wizards. Spencer Radler says he made a great decision in joining South Carolina. Art Bryles not to join Grambling State's coaching staff after all. Coach K home finale a hot ticket. Rick Patino says he will not be the next Maryland basketball coach. And a judge approves a fix to the NFL's $1 billion concussion deal. On next week's show, we'll be talking March Madness. But tonight I thought we'd talk a little college football, a couple of updates on programs and things of note that have happened this offseason, and then we'll talk some NBA hoops as well. First, the wild, weird, wacky, always predictably unpredictable world of Auburn football. Now that the dust has settled, uh, we can take a look at the drama intrigue and chaos that was Brian Harson versus his own administration. Um, a situation that onlookers from around the country took a look at this offseason and thought, what in the world is happening on the plains? And a situation that those of us who grew up Auburn football fans have seen a handful of times already. As it turned out, there was a whole lot of smoke that was rising from the plains over the issue of whether or not Auburn would fire its football coach after only 14 months, only finally to hold an investigation and decide that they'd rather not pay an $18 million buyout. For several key power brokers, uh, Brian Harson was never the coach that they wanted. After Gus Malzahn was let go in Auburn, there was a pretty big push from boosters behind the scenes to hire defensive coordinator Kevin Steele as the new head man. But instead, athletic director Alan Green and his search committee went outside the box and they brought in Brian Harson, uh, a proven winner for sure from Boise State, uh, but not someone with SEC experience or ties. And it's been a rocky road for the first-year Auburn coach. It started only four games into his inaugural season when he made the decision to fire wide receiver coach Cornelius Williams 
which was uh, a head-scratcher to begin with because this is one of the coaches on his coaching staff that did have relationships and connections to high school football programs in the state of Alabama, and a coach that now has been hired by Nick Saban as an analyst over across the state. Auburn started off the season hot at 6-2, and two, and in contention for the SEC West, only to lose their final five games of the season, including a Birmingham Bowl game against the Houston Cougars, and finish the season at 6-7. and seven. As season's end, Harson made the decision to move on from offensive coordinator Mike Bobo even after just one year, and then he saw his defensive coordinator, Derek Mason, leave for the same position to Oklahoma State despite taking a $400,000 pay cut to do so. Brian Harson hired Bobo's replacement Seattle Seahawks quarterback coach Austin Davis, and that lasted for all of six weeks before Austin Davis also stepped away from the program. During the offseason, you had 18 players transfer out of Auburn, including starting quarterback Bo Nix, who left for Oregon, and leading receiver Kobe Hudson, who left for Central Florida, along with four-star freshman defensive lineman Lee Hunter. Not only did 18 players transfer out of Auburn, uh, but some of those players were being quoted in the media saying things about Brian Harson and his program, such as he treated players like dogs and he did not understand or know how to relate to them. To make matters worse, on National Signing Day in February, Brian Harson and his staff signed zero players and finished outside of the top 15 nationally in recruiting, which in most conferences is not that big a deal. If you have a top 20 class, it might even be celebrated. But in Auburn, it puts you about 8th or ninth in your own league. On came the push to get Brian Harson out of Auburn, even while he and his family were on vacation. There were allegations made which now appear to be false about his moral character. Uh, he was contacted by ESPN reporters saying that any attack on my character is BS. And uh, after a week of uncertainty, Brian Harson showed up to SEC Media Days in a coaches' meeting as though it was a part of his routine schedule. He did not answer questions from the media, and Auburn entered into a week-long investigation where everybody and their grandmamas thought that they were moving on from Brian Harson, and instead they decided to keep their coach. Um, all of this drama, all of this build-up, they've hamstrung their own football program and then decided to keep their head coach. So now Brian Harson has filled out his coaching staff. He elevated Eric Keesaw from wide receivers coach to quarterback coach and offensive coordinator. He elevated Jeff Schmetting to defensive coordinator. And he hired I. Killard, Florida former and NFL receiver, as the wide receiver coach. And now enters into a new season where he retains most of a pretty bad offensive line, where he has to figure out who his starting quarterback is going to be where he has the best running back talent in the SEC and only eight receivers on the roster, none of which have very much experience catching a football in an SEC game at all. Because of the apparent meddling by boosters into the football program, and because now there is at least the appearance that Brian Harson has stood up to and won a small victory over those boosters in keeping his job, um, 
it's actually benefited him in the sense that he now has much more support by the average Auburn fan base than he would otherwise following a 6-7 and seven season. But he also enters into a new season uh, where the honeymoon period is over, to say the least, and he's going to have to do yeoman's work in order to keep his job. We may find out whether he is the coach that can hack it uh, sooner rather than later. And hey, I like what Brian Harson has done with his coaching staff. Eric Keesaw and Jeff Schmetting are guys that he is familiar with. If you're going to go out, at least go out with the guys that you know and that you trust. Put them in positions of leadership. Uh, it kind of says to me that he never really wanted Mike Bobo and Derek Mason to begin with. That, that Those hires were compromising hires um, that he hired because they had SEC experience. And I, for one, love the hiring of I Killer as wide receiver coach. If nothing else, uh, being a star SEC receiver and wide receiver in the NFL will allow him to help us recruit and develop players in a way that we have not been able to at that position as of late. But if you look at the Auburn schedule for next football season, you have to figure that in order to keep his job, Brian Harson has to win no fewer than eight games and be competitive against Georgia and Alabama. At least be competitive. Um, at a bare minimum, the man has to win eight football games and show that he has some type of plan when it comes to the quarterback position and be competitive against his rivals. That's just to keep his job. And the schedule ain't easy, my babies. The schedule ain't easy. Auburn begins the year with two easy games, uh, winnable games at home against Mercer and San Jose State. And then they have a matchup with Penn State. And that's where things begin to get hairy. Auburn plays a tough schedule every year with Georgia, Alabama, LSU, and other teams on the schedule, you got to figure they lose to Alabama and Georgia. You got to figure Auburn loses to Texas A&M. You got to figure they at least split the LSU and Penn State games. You got to figure between Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and Arkansas, they lose one of those games as well. That means a bare minimum Auburn has five losses coming out of the football season. And I don't think 7-5 and five is going to cut it for Brian Harson on the Plains next year. Is it possible that they're a SEC West dark horse? Is it possible that uh, Zach Calzada from Texas A&M, the transfer quarterback, comes in and lights it up? Is it possible the offensive line plays far better than expected? Sure. But it sure doesn't look likely at the moment. At the moment, it looks like the Brian Harson situation is going to come to a close a little later than what we thought a few weeks ago, but a whole lot quicker than Alan Green and company would have expected when they hired Brian Harson. And look, I, I hope that I'm wrong. I'm an Auburn fan. Make no mistake about it. I want the man to succeed. He's our football coach. I support him. But when you sign zero players on signing day, when you don't bring in any transfer offensive linemen uh, when that's been a weak spot of yours all season long, when the success of your season hinges on whether one of the five quarterbacks you have on your roster can be a surprising bright spot, those aren't encouraging signs, especially when you lose the last five games of the year the season prior, three of those five games in which you blew leads. Not looking good for Brian Harson on the Plains.
He still has his job. The question is, can he keep it? From a coach that almost lost his job, we go to a coach that just got hired, and that's Mario Cristobal in Miami. Mario Cristobal, who, if you remember, happens to be the coach that I wanted when Auburn moved on from Gus Malzahn. I wanted Auburn to throw a bunch of money his way and bring him in from Oregon. Instead, he winds up at the U. And the reason I mentioned Mario Cristobal and the U is because of the staff that he has assembled. This offseason, Mario Cristobal has put together a staff that will be as good as any other staff in college football. He brought in uh, Michigan and, and Alabama offensive coordinator alum Josh Gaddis to call the plays on offense, former Alabama, Clemson, and Auburn defensive coordinator Kevin Steele to run the defense, and now he brings in Charlie Strong as co-defensive coordinator and linebackers coach, a coach that has flamed out from his last couple of head coaching opportunities, but who is one of the better defensive minds in all of college football. So Mario Cristobal, who is an excellent recruiter, puts together a staff of Josh Gaddis, Kevin Steele, and Charlie Strong in a conference that, outside of Clemson, there's really not that much top-tier competition. And i got to tell you, I think that you might be back sooner rather than later. I think, uh, just like we said about USC when they landed Lincoln Riley, I think Miami might just be reloading. I think it might take Miami only a season or two, and they might be a top 10 football program once again. And it's going to be good for college football, and it's going to be fun to see. I like it when Miami's good. I like it when Notre Dame is good, when Florida State is good, when Tennessee is good, when Ohio State, Oklahoma, USC, Texas, Alabama, when these teams are good at football, it makes the whole product that much better. And I really like what Mario Cristobal is doing in Miami. And that's why I wanted him to be the Auburn coach. But instead, instead we're trying to see if we can win more than seven games this year. I think Miami will. From college football, let's go to the association. In the East, this is what the standings look like. The Heat, 76ers, Bulls, Bucks, Celtics, Cavs, Raptors, Nets, and Hornets, and Hawks round out the top 10 there. And in the West, it is the Suns, Warriors, Grizzlies, Jazz, Mavericks, Nuggets, Timberwolves, Clippers, Lakers, and Pelicans. In the East, uh, the Bulls, who have had a tremendous season, they've been the top seed in the East for most of this time. They're fading just a bit. They're now third in the East. Um, They've still had a great season, but there's a couple teams that are starting to heat up, and one is is the Heat. One team heating up is the Heat, the team from Miami. Um, the Miami Heat are first in the East, and they're playing phenomenal basketball. They're playing phenomenal basketball despite the fact that Kyle Lowry has not yet returned from injury. Victor Oladipo is about to return from injury despite the fact that Jimmy Butler is having uh, quietly one of his worst shooting seasons uh, of his career. He's shooting poorly from the free throw line, uh, from the three-point line, from mid-range. He's just not shooting the ball well. He's still playing defense. He's still uh, a tough competitor, a good leader for his team. But he's not shooting the ball well. But I got to tell you, Eric Spolstra, 
He's got to be one of the top three or four coaches in the NBA. He's got to be one of the top three or four coaches in the NBA. And Miami has a winning culture. From the CEO and GM, Pat Riley, and, and from ownership and, and Mickey Arias, down to Eric Spolstra, down to the, the leadership in the locker room, they've got a winning culture. And Tyler Hero might be the best scorer off the bench in the league. He's having a phenomenal year. He's a sixth starter is what he is. And aside from Tyler Hero, the other player that is keeping things going is my other Kentucky Wildcat, and that's Bam Adebayo. The development of Bam Adebayo makes this team uh, capable of winning the East. He's always been a great defensive player, always been able to guard uh, smaller players and quicker players on the perimeter, always been a good shot blocker. But the way his offensive game has developed... He's not just a pick-and-roll player anymore. He's not just a lob catcher. He has a jump shot. He has soft hands right around the basket. He has some post moves. And Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo and Eric Spolstra have held things together for the Heat. And now they're in first place in the East, and they're about to get healthy. They're about to get deeper, and they can compete with any Eastern team in the playoffs. But the team that might overtake them in the East the Philadelphia 76ers. The 76ers who, of course, have finally moved on from Ben Simmons, who traded uh, Ben Simmons and Andre Drummond and Seth Curry for James Harden. And I was curious. I was interested to see how this was going to work with Embiid and Harden. And the sample size is very small. Very small sample size, but so far, so far it appears to be working very, very well. Because some people were saying, uh, I don't know, James Harden has to have the ball a lot. He dominates the ball, and Joel Embiid is having his greatest season. He's the front runner for MVP, and won't he be taking the ball out of his hands? And it's working phenomenally well. Embiid is still scoring. He's still getting the ball. But now he has somebody that he can ride with. He has somebody next to him. He has somebody that when things break down can get their own shot. And I did not like that the 76ers included Seth Curry in that trade. I thought that they they needed to keep Seth Curry, that they needed his shooting. But the way that Tyrese Maxey has stepped up, the way that Tyrese Maxey has just fitted his game around what Embiid and Harden are doing I got to tell you, uh, I don't typically trust Joel Embiid in the playoffs because he hasn't been in good enough shape down the stretch to be competitive in fourth quarters of playoff games. And because, to be honest, I don't trust Doc Rivers in a seven-game series. He doesn't seem to make the right adjustments. He's really great to get you out to a 3-1 lead. And he's just bad enough to get you to blow it, too. But this might be the year. (laughs) If it's ever going to happen for you 76ers fans, this might be the year because Embiid and Harden so far appear to work and to work well. The other team in the East that's on an absolute rampage is the Boston Celtics. And I got to tell you, Ime Adoka uh, needs to be getting some votes for Coach of the Year because uh, what he's doing in Boston and what Brad Stevens is doing in the front office has been remarkable. 
the development of Grant Williams and Robert Williams on the defensive end and as um, not just rotation players but a starter and a key contributor has been nothing short of incredible. I love the trade that the Celtics made in acquiring Derek White from the Spurs. Derek White, uh, he struggled a little bit offensively since coming over to Boston, but he's an intelligent player. He's a playmaker. He's a good passer. He plays excellent defense. He fits what they what they do tremendously, and he's a better true point guard than Marcus Smart is. The Celtics have won like eight games in a row. They're up to fifth in the East. It's incredible. This is a team that early on in the season, um, they looked like they didn't have a plan. They looked like they weren't really headed anywhere, and I thought that they were in danger of missing the playoffs altogether. And here they are at fifth and climbing. And then there's my Atlanta Hawks. My Atlanta Hawks, uh, they made the conference finals last year. Uh, one of the eight or ten teams I tapped at the beginning of the year to have a great season, and it just hasn't happened. They're 31 and 32. They're almost at 500. They're right on the cusp of being one of the teams that is in the play-in tournament. They're 10th overall right now. But they're also finally healthy. And they also have Trey Young, who is having a phenomenal season. Very quietly, Trey Young is having a phenomenal season. He's one of uh, only a couple players, if not the only player in the league, to be top five in both points and assists in the league. The Hawks have struggled with rotation issues. They've struggled with defense. They've struggled with health all season long. And as of late, as they've gotten healthier leading up to the All-Star break and right after, they're starting to play better basketball. If they can string together several weeks of good defensive basketball, it'll be interesting to see how high they can climb. I think it's too late for them to get to the sixth spot and to miss the play-in tournament, but maybe they can get up to ninth or eighth. Maybe they can afford a better matchup in the play-in tournament. And the other team hoping to do so is the Brooklyn Nets. If the 76ers are the winners of the trade so far, the Nets are losers in general. In general. Here they are a couple seasons after putting together a big three of James Harden, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant with absolutely nothing to show for it. Currently, they have a big three of Kevin Durant, who can't seem to stay healthy as of late, Kyrie Irving, who's only allowed to play sometimes, and Ben Simmons, who can't decide if he's going to be on a basketball team or not. I know the word is that he's dealing with some mental health issues, and I don't make light of such issues. But if you're on the team, you got to be on the court at some point, Ben Simmons. And as good a scorer as Kyrie Irving is... And as much as I believe that the, the defense and the passing of who Ben Simmons was the last time that we saw him on a court two and a half years ago, however long it's been, as much as I think that that should fit and be helpful, as much as Kevin Durant is one of the most unstoppable players in the NBA, to believe that this team has gotten so accustomed to losing and it doesn't seem to be having so much fun and it has defensive insufficiencies, and an inexperienced head coach, to believe that they're just going to cobble things together the last 20 games of the season, throw Ben Simmons out on the court, bring Kyrie on and off and on and off and on and off, and compete for an Eastern Conference championship against the Bulls and the Heat and the 76ers and the Bucks and the Celtics, and I just don't buy it. 
I think there's a greater chance that they're going to be one of the more disappointing teams in the NBA this season. And then we're going to have to wait till next season to see what those three on the court actually look like. In the Western Conference, it's hard to say that the story is not the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers are ninth overall in the standings. They're just a game ahead of the Pelicans for that 10th and final spot uh, in the play-in tournament. And I got to tell you, I would not be surprised at all if the Lakers drop out and do not even make the play-in tournament as bad as they're playing at the moment. The Lakers lost last night to the Clippers, meaning that they lost all four matchups to the Clippers this season. They've lost seven in a row to their little brother, and last night they got absolutely embarrassed. They got ran. They got curb stomped. Reggie Jackson was stunting on them boys in Los Angeles last night. At one point, he crossed uh, Russell Westbrook over. He he scored a basket, and uh, LeBron James was like, why, why are you John? Who are you talking to? He's talking to you, LeBron, because he punked you. The Lakers had no answer for him. They lost by like 30 points. And they've had multiple games like that. They're 0-3 since the All-Star break. They're eight games below 500. Anthony Davis is still hurt, but even if he was not, putting him on the court doesn't necessarily fix what is broken in Los Angeles. And watching that team play, it's apparent. They hang their heads. They don't hustle back on defense. They're arguing with the referee while the other team is laying the ball up. Their head coach looks like he doesn't want to be there, looks like he has no answer for anything that's going on. There's no substitution, no rotation that they can make to make things better. They can't score the basketball. They can't stop the other team from scoring. And even LeBron James, you hear about the fact that he's averaging 29 points a game in his 20th season, 37 years old. And certainly that is uh, incredible. But what you don't hear a lot about is his body language and his poor leadership. Because over the course of his career, LeBron James has been a terrific teammate and a leader. But I got to tell you, if you watch the man play basketball right now, you just don't see very much of that. You see him hang his head. You see him loafing on defense. There was eight or ten times, I counted eight or ten times, where LeBron James didn't even cross half court after his team turned the basketball over. Didn't even cross half court. And when a timeout is called, the team goes to the bench and they sit apart from each other. They're not engaged. They're not encouraging. He's not holding people account uh, to account or demanding better of his team. And he doesn't expect better of his team. And that's an indictment on his leadership this season. The Lakers decided to trade away young talent, to trade away draft picks, to bring in Anthony Davis as the heir apparent, a guy that had struggled with staying healthy his entire career, they they bet on the fact that he would come to L.A. and things would be different. Granted, they won a championship, but things haven't been so different. They were the number three defensive team overall in the league last year, uh, but they had trouble scoring, so they traded away a lot of their defensive pieces. They let them walk away in free agency, and they brought in Russell Westbrook. They attached themselves to a contract that is nearly untradeable a team that everyone looked at in the offseason and said that team is too old. 
that team is too lacks too much shooting. That's not going to work. How do those pieces fit? And LeBron said, you just watch. But by the All-Star break, um, LeBron was saying, maybe I'll go back to Cleveland. Uh, my last season, I'm going to play somewhere with my son. Uh, reports come out that LeBron James and his camp are unhappy with the lack of moves made by Lakers GM Rob Polinka. What was he supposed to do? Who would have been interested in that contract? This season and a lot of the lack of success the Lakers have experienced, a lot of it is on LeBron. He's the reason they won the championship. He's also a reason why they're experiencing a lot of the hardship they're experiencing this season. And they've got the second hardest schedule re- remaining. So I don't even think that they necessarily hang in there in the play-in tournament. They better hope the AD comes back and plays really well really soon. So in the Western Conference, the Lakers are the story even though even though they're in ninth place. The other story are young stars John Morant and Luka Doncic and what they're doing right now, the high level of play that they're experiencing, the way that they're leading their teams. John Morant has the Grizzlies in third place in the West and on the heels of taking over the Warriors um, and taking second place from Steph Curry and crew. Luka Doncic has the Mavericks fifth in the West even after trading away Kristaps Porzingis, a move that a lot of us decried and thought, I don't know if that's so smart. You're putting a whole lot on Luka's shoulders. And Luka has excelled. Luka's playing better. The Mavericks are climbing. The Grizzlies are climbing. Neither one of those guys, the thing that they lack is success in the playoffs so far in their career. This might be the season. Because it's really hard in watching NBA basketball right now to bet against John Morant or Luka Doncic. What they're able to do and, and how they're raising the play of those around them. So a lot happening in the NBA. A lot to watch. A lot that's interesting. We're going to see we're in the last home stretch, the last lap, the last 15 to 20 games of the season to see how things shake out. Who gets healthy? Who goes on a run? Who winds up in the play-in tournament? Who drops out of the top 10 in the standings? What happens to the Lakers? And if the Suns can manage to hold on to that top spot in the West until they get Chris Paul back from injury. Next week, we'll talk some college basketball and March Madness. But this week, I wanted to focus on the NBA. I love this time of year as we get close to the NBA playoffs and we see teams start to separate themselves. We see players start to separate themselves. It's a lot of fun. And that's all for the world of sports. All right, let's switch to this, the news in the world of the paranormal. And for our first story in the world of the paranormal, we go to somebody's house. Let's see why, my babies. Why are we going? Were we invited? Why are we just showing up at some somebody's house unannounced? Let's see. Alexa challenged a 10-year-old girl to electrocute herself. Alexa, how dare you? A 10-year-old girl asked Alexa for a challenge, and the smart speaker suggested one that could have led to her getting electrocuted, which forced Amazon to jump in and fix the issue quickly. A woman on Twitter claimed that her daughter asked Amazon's virtual assistant for a challenge, and it said, Here's something I found on the web. According to OurCommunityNow.com, the challenge is simple. Plug in a phone charger about halfway into a wall outlet. 
then touch a penny to the exposed prongs. Oh my goodness. Jeff Bezos, what are you out here doing to these children? Thankfully, the young girl was smart enough to know that this was a terrible idea and she did not perform the challenge as instructed by Alexa. That's a smart 10-year-old. That's good. She's smarter than I was when I was her rage. Alexa spouting this challenge isn't some malicious person at Amazon trying to get people to touch pennies to electrical plugs. Instead, it's simply the virtual assistant turning to search results when it doesn't have a programmed answer. Unfortunately, because the internet is filled with all kinds of dangerous things like this penny challenge, it's easy for kids to interact with their smart speaker and stumble on results like this one. For its part, Amazon removed the result as quickly as possible so other people wouldn't be given the same challenge. In a statement to Indy 100, an Amazon spokesperson said, Customer trust is at the center of everything we do. That's my sound effect to that statement. Customer trust is at the center of every... No. Dollar bills. Dollar dollar bills, y'all. It's at the center of everything you do. But okay. I digress. And Alexa is designed to provide accurate, relevant, and helpful information to customers. As soon as we became aware of this error, we took swift action to fix it. So they didn't get sued. Let this serve as a reminder that smart speakers and displays are gateways to the internet and information contained within them isn't always curated by the companies that make them. Or is it? Hmm? Hmm? As such, it's smart to supervise your children while the... How are you going to put this lady parenting down in this article? This lady ain't tell her child to stick a penny in the outlet. That was Alexa. In the best case scenario, they may get incorrect information. In the worst case, they may end up being asked to electrocute themselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so Alexa out here telling 10-year-olds to go electrocute themselves. Um, the version of that when I was a child was that your granddaddy would tell you to go play in traffic. <laughs> that's basically the same thing um that's kind of scary i do not have alexa we don't do those smart things in my dumb house and uh now i feel better about that uh about that decision because that's kind of uh that's kind of alarming um i remember one time when i was a child and i mean i was probably like four i was little little uh but i remember this to this day I remember being in a room and uh, seeing a socket that had three holes and looking down at my hand to see that I had a fork that had three prongs. And I'm like, one, two, three, one, two, three. Hey, this is a match. I've put together puzzles. I know how to do this. And I crawled on over and I stuck the fork in the outlet. There were some sparks, but I was okay. As far as I know. <laughs> this is pretty much the worst case scenario. And uh, this is how AI AI be taken over. Little by little. One ten year old at a time. Um, Alexa cannot be trusted. And that is why we do not have her in the shed. Um, yeah. Have you ever had an incident with Alexa... Um, with your smartphone, with a smart speaker that alarmed you, that worried you? Have you had similar incidents? If so, email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I would love to hear that story.
I would love to know the mishaps that you've had with your Alexa, uh, with your Siri, uh, with your uh, virtual assistant or AI overlord. Let us know. From somebody house to Sesame Street we go for our next story. Possessed Elmo doll threatened to kill young boy. Oh my goodness, children being... They trying to harm the children on this episode of In the Shell with Wes Anderson. We get to the paranormal news and children are at risk. The movie website Joe Blow recently launched a new series on their YouTube channel, The Paranormal Network. In the latest episode of Haunted Objects, host Evan O'Hare explores the strange story of a seemingly cursed Elmo toy. In the 12-minute long episode written by Mark Francisco, Evan looks into the story of an Elmo doll that is said to have delivered a sinister message to its young owner. In 2008, a Florida family reported giving their two-year-old son James an Elmo Knows Your Name plush toy. This particular version of the famous Red Muppet could be connected to a computer and programmed to learn phrases as well as the name of its owner. It wasn't until the boy's mother, Melissa Bowman, changed the toy's batteries that she realized something wasn't right. With a squeeze of Elmo's furry tummy, the toy sprung to life and declared in the Muppet's recognizable sing-song voice, Kill James! <laughs> Kill James! In an interview at the time, Melissa said, About an hour later, I noticed exactly what it was saying, and my son was repeating exactly what it was saying. Yo. The concerned mother tried swapping the batteries again and again, but it only seemed to make things worse. The doll now began repeating Kill James over and over at its own free will. Melissa desperately tried keeping the demented Elmo doll away from her son, but it being his favorite toy, a determined James kept scaling up the counters and closets to get it. Fisher-Price said that they investigated the issue and gave Melissa a voucher for a new Elmo. Uh, hey Fisher-Price, how about you give Melissa a priest? Or a gallon of holy water? <laughs> because I don't think that um, your voucher is going to do a lot of good for James or for his mama. Uh, that is freaky. Evan asks, did Melissa Bowman happen upon an Elmo doll for her son that was possessed by a demented spirit? Perhaps the specific little red demon was manufactured in the depths of hell itself. Or could it have been just a demented prank by one of the Fisher-Price employees at its manufacturing plant? Evan also investigated claims of alleged haunted dolls being sold on eBay, despite the fact that eBay no longer allows the sale of metaphysical items or any items with otherwise intangible qualities or traits, such as paranormal or otherwise supernatural claims made about items. The series asks how haunted objects come to be, leaving viewers wondering what they would do if they found out something they cherished was possessed. Would you try and throw it away? Destroy it? Maybe sell it to some unsuspecting buyer? Previously in the series, Evan has investigated the curious tale of an actual human skeleton being used on the set of classic 1982 movie Poltergeist. Yeah, um... So this poor little boy gets gifted uh, an Elmo doll that is supposed to learn his name. And apparently, 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 apparently instead it wants him dead. That terrifies me. (laughs) 
Like, that's really scary. Um, yeah, I think I would burn, I would burn that Elmo. Uh, that Elmo would go straight into the fire. And then those ashes would be buried in a field across town from where... <laughs> no, that's not normal. Um, yeah, I remember when Tickle Me Elmo was a thing. Uh, my cousin Brenton, shout out Brenton, um... His daddy, my Uncle Joe, got him a Tickle Me Elmo. It was the most popular toy in America at the time. And he was terrified of the Tickle Me Elmo because when you squeeze his little hand, Elmo starts shaking uh, like he's having a seizure and laughing. And that was enough to freak out my cousin. Um, I cannot imagine having an Elmo that instead uh, is just saying that you should not be alive anymore and that somebody should take your life. Uh, That is not... um, not my idea of a fun toy. And uh, that mama that mama has every right to be upset with Fisher-Price and Sesame Street. And uh, I'd be calling in the priest. Uh, I would be saying my Hail Marys, wearing my rosary, uh, drowning Elmo in a gallon of holy water, uh, tossing him up onto the fire, maybe put a stake through his heart, um, get some garlic and uh, i'm just combining i'm just i'm over here just combining but I, i'm gonna combine anything and everything that could possibly offer me protection from this elmo um yeah no mm-mm. not over here evil elmo no thank you from one muppet to another we go for our next story 15 of 23 monkeys with Elon Musk's Neuralink brain chips reportedly die. Out of a total of 23 monkeys implanted with Elon Musk's Neuralink brain chips at the University of California, Davis, between 2017 and 2020, at least 15 have reportedly died. Via Business Insider and the New York Post, the news come from the Physicians Committee of Responsible Medicine, an animal rights group that viewed over 700 pages of documents, veterinary records, and necropsy reports through a public records request at the university. Neuralink was founded in 2016 with the goal of helping people recover from traumatic brain and spinal cord injuries, curing depression and other mental health disorders, and connecting humans to the internet for everything from music streaming to near-telepathic communication. The company has often touted its successes, such as a demonstration on a pig in 2020 and a 2021 video of a macaw playing Pong with its mind. The project has attracted a great deal of interest from celebrities like Grimes and Lil Uzi Vert, and people suffering from paralysis often petition Musk on social media to be a part of the human trials. Musk previously said that he hoped to begin human trials in 2021, but that goal has been pushed back to 2022. Based on the PCRM's findings, the brain chips may be nowhere near ready. Pretty much every single monkey that had had implants put in their head suffered from pretty debilitating health effects, said the PCRM's research advocacy director, Jeremy Beckham. They were, frankly, maiming and killing the animals. Neuralink chips were implanted by drilling holes into the monkey's skulls. One primate developed a bloody skin infection and had to be euthanized. Another was discovered missing fingers and toes, possibly from self-mutilation or some other unspecified trauma, and had to be put down. A third began uncontrollably vomiting shortly after surgery and days later appeared to collapse from exhaustion and fatigue. An autopsy revealed the animal suffered from a brain hemorrhage. 
The PCRM filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Agriculture on Thursday, accusing UC Davis and Neuralink of nine violations of the Animal Welfare Act. That's what they got Joe Exotic for uh, right there, so be careful, Elon. Many, if not all, of the monkeys experienced extreme suffering as a result of inadequate animal care and the highly invasive experimental head implants during the experiments, which were performed in pursuit of developing what Neuralink and Elon Musk have publicly described as a brain-machine interface, the group wrote in the complaint. These highly invasive implants and their associate hardware, which are inserted in, in the brain after drilling holes in the animal's skulls, have produced reoccurring infections in the animals, significantly compromising their health as well as the integrity of the research. A spokesperson for UC Davis responded to the complaint saying, We strive to provide the best possible care to animals in our charge. Animal research is strictly regulated, and UC Davis follows all applicable laws and regulations, including those of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The spokesperson added that the university stopped working with Neuralink in 2020. Neuralink has not issued a response. So, apparently Neuralink is every bit as bad an idea as it appears to be. That's what I learned from that article. And also, I feel very bad for those poor, poor monkeys. Elon Musk out here selling these monkeys on the idea that they're going to become smart. That they're going to finally be on par with their cousin, the person. And instead, they experience all kinds of trauma and hardship. Look, you're not putting your drill in my dome, okay? Um... Elon Musk, you and your folk can go live on Mars. You can take your rockets. Uh, I wouldn't mind having one of your flamethrowers, but outside of that, hey, keep your drill away from my dome and away from my pets. Um, Look, I would love for those things that he is trying to address to be addressed and to be solved. And to be figured out. And technology is probably the answer to that. I don't want nobody up in my head able to to hack my brain. To read my thoughts. To talk to me telepathically. I don't need a Bluetooth in my skull. I already have it attached to my hand, okay? Um, I have a hard enough time unplugging as it is. I don't need a Neuralink inside my dome. Um, AI might take over, it seems inevitable, but your boy would not be a part of it, okay? I would not be a part of it, Elon. You can count me out on that one, big dog. It's a hard, hard no, hard no for me when it comes to the Neuralink. And I've always felt that way, but this only confirms it. R.I.P. to those 15 monkeys. Enjoy your champagne with Harambe on the Rainbow Bridge, my babies. Rest in power, monkeys. And for our last story this week, we go to Wisconsin. Or do we? What happened to Doveland, Wisconsin? And did it ever exist at all? Do you know about Doveland, Wisconsin? It's a town. Well, 
No, that's not quite correct. It was a town. A small one, more rural than suburban, all, although no one is really sure within the state of Wisconsin where it was located. No maps of it have ever been unearthed. Indeed, it seems to have been scrubbed from the historical record completely. Doveland, you see, allegedly disappeared sometime in the late 1980s or early 1990s, but no one is really sure when it happened or where the town went. Not Doveland. Most locals don't even remember Doveland. But if you look in the right places, you'll find them. The folks who are asking the questions and looking for answers. What happened to Doveland, Wisconsin? Where did it go? And most importantly, did it ever really exist in the first place? There's a short answer to the whole mystery, of course. Doveland, Wisconsin is almost certainly a myth, like Urkhammer, Iowa, and Ashley, Kansas. The real conundrum, though, is about where the myth comes from and when it originated. And that mystery, well, that's one that we may not have an easily distinguishable answer for. Doveland might be a piece of internet lore, or it might not be. It might be older. We don't really know. Here's what we do know about Doveland. Supposedly, there was a small town in Wisconsin called Doveland that just up and disappeared sometime in the late 1980s, early 1990s. One day the town was there, the next it wasn't. Every man, woman, and child vanished into thin air. Nobody today remembers Doveland. There is allegedly tourist memorabilia from the town that still exists. T-shirts, mugs, postcards, etc. But the town is gone. It was also removed from maps and raised by the powers that be either to cover up what happened or out of fear that it might happen again. What's really weird is that most locals don't remember Doveland either, which is strange because rural Wisconsin communities are closely knit, just like every other sparsely populated area of the country. The most likely explanation is it never existed at all. But are we sure? Here are the theories postulated as to where it went. Theory 1. The town just never existed and is internet BS probably sourced from and ending with some poser's LARPing antics. Theory 2. The locals up and left due to untenable circumstances like sickness or lack of economy. Theory 3. A government project or experiment went wrong, killing everyone. Then they raised it to the ground to cover their screw-up. Theory 4. The town fell into another dimension or we shifted to a reality where the town never existed. Think Mandela Effect. Searching for Doveland, Wisconsin on Google only yields some old threads. But more mysteriously are two articles on missing people in Wisconsin. Those articles are from the Appleton, Wisconsin area newspaper, The Post Crescent. The Post then concludes, Most of the evidence points to it being just an urban legend, but it wouldn't be the first mass disappearance. Roanoke, Lake Anjakuni, Or Verde, and several other small localities are confirmed as having disappeared. The aforementioned posts are scant in detail. They're largely dated 2017 and onward, and occasionally prompted by the appearance of Doveland on conspiracy-themed versions of those iceberg charts that have become so popular recently. The posts consist of comments like, Doveland, explain, and Doveland is apparently a town in Wisconsin that disappeared sometime in the 1990s, which has led to conspiracy theories about the place. Although every so often someone will write something like, 
town in northwest Wisconsin that disappeared in the early 90s. I grew up around Rhinelander, and I distinctly remember my dad wearing a t-shirt from a bar that said, Barron's Pub, Doveland, Wisconsin, many times when I was a kid. There's a piece of copy pasta that tends to pop up with some degree of frequency in these posts as well. You live in Wisconsin? Just ask around. Most people born before the 90s will remember the city of Doveland. Some even have shirts, mugs, etc. that reference it. A small amount of additional information can be found at the obscure urban legend wiki page on Doveland, mostly in the form of a few quotes allegedly from people who either claim to remember the town or who think they know what happened to it. A bunch of them back the idea of the town having been related to the military in some way. Doveland was really real, one asserts. My father used to mention it occasionally before he passed, and the only reason I remember it is because I found it ironic that a town named Doveland was populated by almost exclusively military personnel and their families. The source of this quote goes on to say, If I remember correctly, the town was built as a part of Project Sanguine in the mid to late 60s. Maybe everyone left when the project was canceled, but I thought something went very wrong. You can only dig up that much turf for so long before you're bound to have problems. They promised that the next time they visited their family, they would dig around for a shirt from Doveland. A second quote repeats much of the same information. I just learned of all the noise surrounding Doveland, and I think I can add some insight, the quote says. Doveland was a small town in Wisconsin that housed a lot of military families. My father lived there for a year or two and spoke of it occasionally. The main thing I remember is that it had to do with Project Sanguine in the early 60s. However, this quote also goes to note that the reason for the town's alleged disappearance wasn't X-Files type stuff. Rather, it's thought that Doveland was destroyed after an incident of some kind. I thought they were digging up a ton of land or something and they flooded the town or something, but this is a rehashed secondhand memory from years ago, the quote reads. But another quote refutes the idea of Doveland being military. The locations for Doveland don't coincide with Project Sanguine, due to the bedrock, it states. There's nothing sci-fi about Sanguine, and nothing that could cause an accident where a town would disappear. But there have been studies about the possible increase in cancer due to the power and frequencies used to these sites. One last quote put it succinctly. As someone who has lived in various places in Wisconsin for over 30 years, and has been in the Army, never once has any single person ever mentioned Doveland. Beyond all that, though, which, when you get down to it, doesn't amount to much, there isn't really anything else to find about Doveland. All we know is that allegedly it existed, then one day, allegedly, it suddenly did not. So where's the line between fact and fiction? Here's what's real. Project Sanguine. Project Elf 2. In fact, Project Sanguine is perhaps best thought of as the blue sky version of Project Elf, the platonic ideal version, the version that arose from brainstorming without the need to consider limitations. Both were U.S. Navy projects in intended to facilitate communication with deep-sea submarines, although one never quite got off the ground and the other has since been declared obsolete. Project Sanguine was first proposed in 1968. The idea was, as Vox put it in an explainer in 2015, to bury a gigantic grid of cables under roughly 41% of the state of Wisconsin in order to turn its bedrock into the world's largest radio antenna. The cables would, with the aid of 100 underground power plants, generate extremely low-frequency elf waves, with the end result being a system capable of surviving a nuclear attack that could send messages and orders, although not receive them, to nuclear submarines anywhere in the world. But there was a problem. Money. Project Sanguine would have been enormously expensive to build, and so it was shelved. 
What was concocted instead was Project ELF, so named for the variety of waves it was meant to transmit communications over. Constructed in 1969 with testing beginning in 1982, Project ELF encompassed two transmitters, one at Clam Lake in Wisconsin and one at Republic in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which could cooperate together as one large antenna or independently as two smaller ones. Unlike the plans for Project Sanguine, Project ELF's cables were strung above ground, and as such, the system was not built to survive nuclear attacks. It operated between 1989 and 2004, when due to factors ranging from constant complaints from residents to the limitations of ELF as a communication method, the project was shut down. So how does Doveland, Wisconsin fit in with Project Sanguine and ELF? In a few ways, although it's worth noting that the potential connections weren't introduced into the story until it had already been circulating for a bit. The quotes collected by Obscure Urban Legend suggest that the town was flooded, either accidentally or on purpose, during the construction of Project Sanguine. Of course, there's a problem with that idea. Project Sanguine never progressed to the construction stage. It was killed off before anything even remotely close to breaking ground happened. There was no digging, and therefore there is no way the town could have been flooded by the act of digging. And Project Elf wasn't underground at all, so the story doesn't line up with the facts there either. Indeed, upon closer examination, there are a number of holes in the story. Some of them may be documentation errors, while others may be pure fabrication. Either way, it's when you start to look a little closer to everything that it all starts to fall apart. Let's start with when Talk of Doveland first arrived online, because as it turns out, much of the water of the story holds is dependent on that detail. It's sometimes said that the earliest known mention of Doveland on the internet occurred in 2015. The Obscure Urban Legend Wiki article points to a news article about missing Wisconsinites published that year as evidence to that fact, but there's nothing in the article about Doveland at all. There's an explanation for how it got erroneously included here, though. It's because of an error made by the writer of that post. You know, the one that summarizes most of what we know about Doveland and its alleged existence. The post, you'll recall, notes that searching for Doveland, Wisconsin on Google only yields some old threads, where they're just as confused as I am, but more mysteriously, two articles on missing people in Wisconsin. As a reminder, both of those articles are from the post Crescent. One of them is the 2015 article cited by Obscure Urban Legend. The confusion of the post implies that the original poster also found there to be no mention of Doveland in those articles. That is, the writer seems unsure why Google included them in the search results, given that one of the key search terms is nowhere within them. It is true even now in 2021 that searching for Doveland, Wisconsin on Google brings up the 2015 Post-Crescent article on the first page of results. But that's only the case when you don't use any modifiers to narrow down the search. When you put Doveland in quotation marks, or both Doveland and Wisconsin in quotation marks, or the entire phrase Doveland, Wisconsin in quotation marks, quotation marks being a modifier that will tell Google to look for results that have an exact match for the words or phrases around which they're placed, then the result disappears. I mention this because it provides some important information about the post, namely that its writers seem to have misunderstood how search engines work. They aren't perfect. They can and will return results that aren't actually relevant to what you're hoping to find, and they'll do so for a wide variety of reasons, including how specific you are about what you tell it to look for. 
The trouble is, once this post pointed to those two articles as connected to the mystery of Doveland, so did everyone who looked into it afterwards, and the vast majority of them seemed not to have actually vetted the articles for relevancy before linking to them as well. The bottom line, these two articles are almost certainly errors on Google's part and should not be considered connected to the Doveland mystery. This also means that pinning 2015 as the year of discussion of Doveland's first appeared online is incorrect. In fact, I haven't found anything about Doveland dated earlier than 2017. The earliest posts featuring Doveland only go back to 2017. And all the quotes and sound bites documented at Obscure Urban Legend? I tracked down the original sources for as many of them as I could, and again, I found nothing dated earlier than 2017. Most of them, in fact, are from 2018. One, for instance, is from a Reddit comment dated 2018, while several others are from the comment section of an 8-minute YouTube video, also published in 2018, and it's an excerpt from a larger podcast episode about the legend. The commenter responsible for two of those comments also added them directly to the Obscure Urban Legend page in October of 2020. Could the legend have been circulating locally before 2017? Of course. Indeed, some of the quotations from people insisting they'd heard older relatives or what have you discussing it point to that possibility being the case. But then again, all we have to go on is what these folks who really are just random people on the internet are saying. There's nothing to back it up. No paper trail, no historical record, nothing. As a result, we must necessarily take it with a grain of salt. And from within that framework, I have a suspicion that the legend of Doveland isn't a local legend at all, but originated in one of two places both online, either on 4chan or in a Tumblr post. But I can't prove it. And yes, it does bug me that I can't prove it. The trouble is, like all those other theories and ideas about Doveland and its existence or non-existence that are floating around out there, I can't track the trail all the way to those sources. I can't see when the original post was published because it no longer exists. Meanwhile, 4chan archives are regularly expunged or otherwise made inaccessible. So there's only so far I can go down the rabbit hole. All I can do is point to the lack of evidence in other places. The lack of anything available on the internet about it before 2017. Its absence from maps produced during the times when Doveland should have been on them, and so on and so forth, as suggestive of it having been both a recent invention and one that came from the depths of the internet. Absence, of course, is not proof positive. This statement goes both ways. While I would absolutely respond to anyone who says the lack of maps or historical documents depicting Doveland is evidence that Doveland did exist, and there's a cover-up going on that these maps and documents were destroyed, by pointing out that they're falling prey to a logical fallacy. I likewise can't just say, well, we don't have anything written online about Doveland prior to 2017, therefore the idea of it did not exist before then without falling prey to the same logical fallacy myself. So for what it's worth, the various souvenirs from Doveland that are available to buy online currently are likely not authentic. It's easier than ever to just design a shirt and make it available for purchase these days. Thanks to services like Teespring and Zazzle, you don't even need to be human to design a t-shirt and offer it for sale. It's no secret that tons of algorithm-generated products have flooded the market in recent years. And so the story of Doveland, Wisconsin remains unresolved. Personally, I think it's a legend that was born sometime in the late 2010s. Others, however, may feel otherwise. Just don't try to visit it. There's nothing to find there now. Wherever there is meant to be anyway. If there ever was. So, Doveland, Wisconsin, was it a real place? 
Or was it not? Is it a made-up conspiracy? Is it a made-up legend? Or was there once a town that is now disappeared, that is now barely remembered, and is now no more than a distant memory in our subconscious as a culture? Very interesting. Um, is it possible that entire towns disappear? Yeah. Uh, look at Roanoke. Um, Croatoan. We still don't... <laughs> We still don't quite know what happened there. Uh, look at some native cultures that have just completely disappeared. Um, it's certainly possible. But in more modern times, you would think that there would be some type of record uh, or somebody that, that knew some type of story that survived uh, oral tradition um, where folks could explain what happened. Um, the only way I can see this being true is if the government has uh, one of them little sticks, uh, one little pen, light up things from Men in Black. Uh, <laughs> they make you forget things and they change your memory. Uh, if that technology exists and we don't know about it, then uh, you could get rid of an entire town very easily. You just go door to door, you zap everybody's memory, you move them to a new place and let them start over. Um, otherwise, I see I see this as uh, most likely just something that exists on the internet. Uh, somebody posted something. Uh, it was all fun and games. Uh, it'd be a fun thing to investigate. It'd be a fun thing to figure out where it really came from. To get down, uh, follow these posts online, go down the rabbit hole until you found the one person that it originated with, and to ask them like, "Hey, what were you doing the day you made up Dove Land, Wisconsin?" <laughs> What were you thinking? Why would you impose this on them cheese people? They just waiting to see if Aaron Rodgers is going to resign, okay? Uh, they don't have a lot going for them. They got a good college basketball team right now that might make a run in the tournament. We might talk about the Badgers next week. But hey, did you make up Doveland, Wisconsin? It wasn't real, right? Um, I'd never heard of this. Have you heard of this? Have you heard of Doveland, Wisconsin? Have you heard of this conspiracy theory? Get at us and let us know. You can find us on Twitter at InTheShed4. Uh, we're up to 3,600 followers there. We love interacting with you there. Or you can email the show at InTheShedWithWes at gmail.com. I always look forward to getting your emails. Um, is this something that you've heard of? Have you heard of Doveland, Wisconsin? And what do you think? Is this a possibility that there was an entire town that existed in Wisconsin and uh, because of some type of mishap or government experimentation or a military issue, the town has been leveled and wiped from memory? How would you even go about doing that? How would you get rid of an entire town and leave not a trace, um, not a person that remembered it, um, not a town, a uh, neighboring town that remembered it, nothing? Uh, is that even possible? Get at us and let us know. Um, I don't think it's terribly likely. I do think it's a terribly interesting story. Yeah. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 35. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. 
Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, the Good Pods app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at InTheShed4. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, talk some sports, and take a look at the true story of a pride of serial killer lions. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best news show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it! <laughs>